Welcome to the School of Faith podcast. I'm Chris Nye. We're doing a Bible deep dive into the book of Daniel. And we've been marching through the narrative section, which is Daniel 1 through 6, 7 through 12 is the apocalyptic visions. We find ourselves right here in chapter 5. So uh, join me, if you can, in Daniel chapter 5. We'll start in verse 1. Well, before we start in verse 1, let's take a moment to maybe help us understand a little bit about Daniel, the narrator. Uh, Last episode, I made some comments about the narration because it switched to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and then now it's going to switch back to kind of the third-person omniscient. So I wanted to clarify this, right? Um, The narrator of Daniel is third-person omniscient. What do we mean by that? This is meaning it's not from Daniel's first-person perspective. Well, you're like, but I thought the author was Daniel. The book is called Daniel. It seems to get inside the mind of Daniel. Well, this was a very common way to write a story as a Hebrew author is that you wanted the story to outlast you. First-person narrators um, are uh, few and far between in your Old Testament. Many times they're in the authority of Daniel or Jonah or um, Samuel, something like that. Um, They're in the authority of these writers, but they are not necessarily written by by them. What what do I mean by that? Scribes would write these stories, okay? There'd be trained scribes that would write the stories and then copy the stories. But it was always under someone's authority and someone's, um, you know, was the editor, so to speak, right? The final voice on it. And that's where Daniel's uh, authorship comes from. But the narrator's third person omniscient. And you can also tell that this narrator in the book of Daniel is not really interested in fine details, but in storytelling, there are a couple of fine details, um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's claws are like, you know, the claws of a, or nails are like the claws of a bird, happened at the end of that chapter, right? Uh, the fact that their hair didn't smell like sulfur when they get out of the fiery furnace in chapter three, there's moments of detail, right? Um, but not a lot. Really what Daniel, the narrator of Daniel is very interested in is storytelling. These stories are really compelling. They're ki- the kind of stories that really stick with children, a man in a lion's den, right? Uh, this this story we're looking at in chapter five, uh, handwriting on the wall, a mysterious hand writing messages on a wall, right? That could capture the imagination of a children. Obviously the fiery furnace in chapter three. These are beautiful, compelling stories that are, um, that the narrator's most interested in. Thirdly, there's a divine or eternal eye that can be trusted here, right? Um, so you see uh, a lot of kind of pulling back of the kingdom of God or the or the eternal perspective. It seems like the author is very interested in that kind of thing. Finally, fourthly, there's a bridge between ancient and modern um, storytelling. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, you can see while the story is set in ancient times, there seems to be a forecast for how God's people will live like for a long time. This is again connected to our exile series at Awakening. First Peter uh, draws upon the motif of exiles, um, the trope that's kind of tossed throughout scripture. Daniel seems, like the author seems to be aware that the ways in which Daniel is living and his friends are living 
will be the ways the people of God will always live, right? So it's not just to help Daniel and the people of his time, but it would help Jesus, the people in Jesus's time, right? During the Roman occupation, it was going to help the early church um, as they moved into Asia Minor. That's First Peter, right? And it helps us today, right? It has a bridge to modern day. So it's a little bit about the narrator of Daniel and helps you kind of see the message and the thing he's hoping to do. So chapter five, interesting chapter. King Belshazzar is who we're interested or who we're introduced to in chapter five, verse one. He has a great feast and for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, it says in verse two, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and the silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, okay, so here we know, this is Nebuchadnezzar's son, the heir to the throne, that the vessels of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, uh, uh, sorry, that I'm sorry, the vessels of gold and of, uh, and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them as they're brought to him. Okay, you read that, you better think, this is not a good king. (laughs) You don't have to read much of your Old Testament, or even much of your Bible for that matter, to realize that drinking a lot of wine and taking things from the temple and using them to drink uh, wine is not a good move. This is not a dude who's going to be... um, yeah, I remember in seminary, one of my professors, Gary Brashears, he would often read us the Bible and say, good guy or bad guy, <laughs> you know, or good move or bad move. He'd kind of do that, right? These are not complex stories, but it's pretty easy for us to realize a drunkard taking things from the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had restored. Right when Nebuchadnezzar had been doing something good, Belshazzar, his son, comes in and starts to bring things back to square one. Okay, so the king throws this big irreverent party. The king is visited by a hand who writes on the wall. This is verses five through nine. And then in verses 10 through 12, other wise men magicians try to interpret. Verses 13 through 30, Daniel is called in and he interprets the the writing. Once again, we should be like, we've been here before. We should be thinking we've been here before. Again, man, the Bible is interested in teaching us. This storyteller is interested in showing us the wisdom of God. And so much so that he doesn't just want to tell you one story about this, but wants to really hammer this home. But there's intricacies in this one, right? You see that King Belshazzar is an arrogant leader in verse 2. He's seen, I was just quoting that, tasting the wine. And then verse 7, it says the king loudly Uh, called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. So he's an arrogant leader. He's also a blasphemous leader. Because in verse 3, it says they brought the golden vessels that they had taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lord, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. Verse 4, they drank wine and praised uh, the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Again, is this a good move or a bad move? This is a bad move. So he's an arrogant uh, leader. He's a blasphemous leader. Blasphemy is dishonoring God through speech or actions. So he's arrogant. He's blasphemous. He's an idolater. Again, back in verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, quite literally praising idols. So he's arrogant, blasphemous, idolatrous. Wait a second. <laughs> What's familiar about him? 
Who does he remind you of? Yeah, I know, a lot of kings in the Old Testament. But he should be most reminiscent of his father, Nebuchadnezzar. We should be like, wait a second, am I reading the story of Belshazzar or am I reading the story of Nebuchadnezzar? And the answer is yes. You're reading the same arrogance from the same person. But now, you read this story, I hope, Daniel chapter 5. And this dude gets a visit from heaven's hand, (laughs) writing him this message that is, um, you know, uh, deathly, saying like, your time and numbers are limited. And then if you look down at verse 29, Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed in purple. He, He elevates him. But then in verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. <laughs> and Darius the Medi, or the Median Persian Empire, received the kingdom. So the kingdom's over by Daniel, end of Daniel chapter 5. Again, we, we saw the vision given in chapter 2 of the head of gold, right? The breastplate plate of silver, the legs of bronze, and the feet of iron. And these were representing different kingdoms, the top being the Babylonian kingdom, the second, the silver kingdom, being the Median Persian Empire. That comes in right here at the end of chapter uh, 5. So the the kingdom is over. Now, you might be thinking, why does Belshazzar get judged so harshly here? Like, why does he get judged so harshly? You ever think about this, right? Nebuchadnezzar, we just went four rounds with that dude. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. He keeps not learning his lesson. Then Belshazzar shows up. He throws one irreverent party, gets one vision, and dies that night. Wow, the Old Testament God. Here we go again, right? We always, we always talk about how harsh the Old Testament God is. Don't miss reading your Bible slowly. Interpreting this is so important. We are not seeing a rash judgmental God burning from heaven in his wrath. No, 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 no. We're seeing a patient God last generation upon generation dealing with sin, showing his grace and his mercy and bringing his judgment in a swift manner. But only after he shows grace and mercy. How do we know this? There's one key interpretive verse and I put this in your group's resources Curriculum, again, awakeningchurch.com. You can go to and see the curriculum at the group's resources. But I, I tried to highlight this verse. And if you didn't see it, maybe you're listening to this and can, uh, you know, highlight it for your group or highlight it as you read this. How do we know that God did not judge him so harshly? It's in verses 22 and 23. So if you're sitting here in chapter um, 5, verse 22 and 23 you'll see the answer of why this is not God judging Belshazzar any more harshly. Chapter 5, verse 22. This is in the middle of Daniel's interpretation of the handwriting. He says this. Uh, He kind of encapsulates his dad's kingdom. But in 22, he said, And you, his son, he's talking to Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. And here's the key line though you knew all this, but you have lifted up against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have 
been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of gold. You've been an idolatrous person. You've praised the gods of uh, silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways. You have not honored him. It's not a very harsh word, actually. It's a very reasonable word. He looks at Belshazzar and he said, look, your dad, he tells his dad's story to him. Your dad did all the things you're doing and you, his son, verse 22, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. Again, the key line in 22, even though you knew all this. Belshazzar, you knew everything. Everything was before you to understand this. And you still haven't seen. This is a good lesson for us, is it not? This is the way God works. You know, right when we think God is judgmental, we think he's harsh, we need to read his words carefully. It makes me think about this story in Luke 16. Luke 16 is the story that Jesus tells of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man goes into Hades or hell and is in the flames. Tough passage, right? He's burning. Luke chapter 16. And the uh, Lazarus, who was poor, goes to Abraham's side, basically kind of a heaven paradise-like place. And they're having a discussion in between heaven and hell. Jesus is telling the story again. This is not necessarily an exact report, although we might think it could have happened. But Jesus is telling this kind of parable or story. He's saying Lazarus is in this heavenly place, and the rich man is in this hellish place. And the rich man begs for Lazarus or someone, Abraham even, to go and, it says in 27, this is Luke 16, 27, and he said, I beg you, Father, send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. I've got five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham says this to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent, right? If a dead man shows up, they'll repent. 31, Luke 16, 31. He he says to this rich man, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Oof, that should get you, right? Basically, we all think that if we're to see God face to face, if we were to meet him, if we were to see him rise from the dead, that we would believe. Abraham's argument is, if you read the story of the Exodus, if you read the story of Genesis, Moses, if you read the prophets, Isaiah, if you read Daniel, and you do not believe, and you are not swayed by who the God in heaven is, and if you are not humbled in your heart based off of these stories, you won't be humbled by the resurrection. You won't be humbled by someone coming from the dead. We get a microcosm of this in Daniel chapter 5. We see the man himself 
Daniel standing before the king himself, Belshazzar. And Daniel goes, man, you knew everything. You saw what pride did to your dad. And you saw what humility did for your dad. And you decide to live in pride? You see, to much is given, much is expected, Jesus says. And man, it might be a sobering wake-up call that some of us have been given so much in our life to look back on and to go, we know better, right? God has taught us what we know. And we should know what he is sending to us as messages of his grace to call us to repentance. This is all throughout scripture. It's a cycle found in the book of 2 Chronicles and 1 Chronicles for that matter. It's seen in the life of Saul, the life of David. Man, it's even seen in the Garden of Eden. All over, we are called to humility and the lessons of our forefathers. The lessons of those, our fathers and mothers who come before us. The ways in which they struggled and the ways in which their humility led to repentance and blessing. And if we don't have that in our immediate purview, in our own story, then we have it in Scripture. We certainly have it in Scripture. When we see the Pharisees rejecting Jesus, when we see his own disciples selling him out for pieces of silver, when we see Peter denying Jesus by the fire as Jesus is tried in the, high, uh, the tribunal, we see it in the cross as the only one who is there was the beloved disciple and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Yeah, we see this all over. And so as we see people puffed up with pride leading to destruction, we too must take Moses and the prophets, the book of Daniel, the book of Exodus, Genesis, Deuteronomy. We should take the biblical witness and say, humility is the path that leads to life. Subjecting myself to God and his ways Humbling myself and pursuing righteousness is the way of life. Belshazzar did not get this. God's judgment was not too swift. It was actually right on time. And that's the harsh lesson leading us into the final story, which is Daniel chapter 6. But that's next time, because this was Daniel chapter 5. <laughs>